In our last episode, we talked about general nutrition guidelines for the population and how some of those may not always be the most suitable for runners, cyclists, and triathletes as you start to do bigger and bigger volumes of training. Some of these guidelines, which are intended for sedentary people, which are the majority of the population, don't always apply for these big training volumes and in some cases can actually do more harm than good. Today, we are going to speak to an athlete who has come into the sport and experienced this journey as a runner from a complete beginner, knowing about general nutrition guidelines through to someone who's regularly doing large volumes of training and how her approach to nutrition has changed over that time. Hello and welcome to The Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Alan McCubbin. And I'm Steph Gaskell. We're both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each episode, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask, sort of stuff that people are talking about out on their run or ride, in the coffee shop afterwards or jumping on Google to try and find answers for. So we'll take that question and break it down, inviting a guest expert in our A episode and a guest athlete or coach in our B episode to add their perspective. Today it is episode 64B, what nutrition advice for the general population does not apply to athletes, with our special guest, runner Elise Beacom. Before we get to Elise though, Steph, how are you going this week? I'm going good, Al. As you know, I'm sitting here nervously waiting to see if our bid is going to win against everyone else living in Melbourne going for the same house that we're going to be going for. So, you know, by the time people have listened to this, we're either still homeless or we've secured a a house. So, so yeah, just a little bit nervous with that one. And just to clarify for the listeners, Steph's not recording this in a tent in a park somewhere. She does have a roof over her head. It's just that the lease is expiring soon. Yeah, yeah, getting close, getting close, cutting it fine, which I, I don't love doing. How are you going now? You've got kids on holidays, I believe. So how's that going? Yeah, yeah, school holidays with kids is always a bittersweet type of thing. Obviously, you get to spend more time with the kids, which is fantastic. Obviously, making the juggle work is is the challenge. So it's just trying to trying to juggle both of those needs. I had the five-hour sodium study, that paper. Obviously, we talked about that probably 12 or 18 months ago on the podcast in terms of mm-hmm. desperately trying to recruit poor souls to run five hours on a treadmill <laughs> like you did but yeah no that's that's well and truly through the review process now so we've got some feedback on that and got to make a few adjustments but it's it's looking good so hopefully that will be published sort of between now and christmas which would be great awesome and no doubt we'll do a bit of a carousel on on that one in our social media hour to yeah help our listeners interpret all that yeah. wonderful info yeah, and, and that will be presented also at the Sports Dietitians Australia Conference in October. So the abstract for that has been accepted as well. So, yeah, looking forward to, to presenting that at the conference. Uh, I think this year, unfortunately, I'll have to attend virtually, so I'll have to pre-record it mm-hmm. rather than being up there. Uh, oh, sorry, not the Gold Coast, the Sunshine Coast, which would be even nicer, yeah, but that's that's mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Updates and announcements, Al? 
Yeah, not a whole lot, but I thought I'd highlight this five-star rating and review that we had on Apple Podcasts from Sean Dunn, who actually requested this episode. So thanks for, for the request, Sean. I think it's it's turned out really well, but thank you very much for the the very generous and, and wonderful review on Apple Podcasts as well. It was very kind of you. And Sean is now one of the people in the draw to win a copy of our ebook for leaving that that review on Apple Podcasts. So that'll be out hopefully in only a few more weeks now, Steph. We're in the final stages of sort of proofreading and doing the final editing of that at the moment. So, yeah, as soon as that's ready, we'll let people know how they can find out how to get their hands on that when it does become available. But Sean's in the running to win one copy and we've had two other people that have that have won copies as well. Yeah, awesome, awesome. And we did have a, another really lovely feedback and I w- won't say the name in case I'm not meant to, to say their name, but they've given us a couple of, of suggestions for, for future episodes as well and also, you know, thanked us for, yeah, providing nu- nutrition, freely available <laughs> information, I guess. He's found it really helpful and was successful in completing his first marathon and he was able to go into that quite confident knowing that yeah his nutrition strategy was was quite good so yeah that's also really nice and positive so thank you for that feedback we do really appreciate the feedback because it helps us know if we're on the right track providing information that's useful for our listeners so On that, if you do have a question that you would like answered on the podcast, you can find us on social media at The Long Munch on Instagram and Twitter, Al. And let's let's get stuck into this episode, Al. So we're up to episode 64B. Yep, yep. So what nutrition advice for the general population doesn't apply to athletes? And as I said off the top, our guest is runner Elise Beacom. So Elise is a very keen runner. Originally from your hometown of Adelaide, Steph, you'll be pleased to know. But as, as we'll hear on this podcast, she's travelled the globe. She's a very well-travelled lady, now currently living down on the surf coast in, in Victoria here. So she's a, a keen runner, mostly sort of the half marathon and, and marathon distances. And if you've heard Elisa's name before and, and recognise her voice on the podcast, it's probably because you might also listen to the For the Kudos podcast which is a a running specific podcast and she hosts the Q&A series on there and we've been interviewed together actually on that podcast before Steph in the lead up to the the Gold Coast Marathon earlier this year and I think it's a really nice episode it gives us a nice insight into her running journey she's I guess someone like a lot of people took up running in her 20s and so has probably had you know preconceived ideas about nutrition and healthy eating through her earlier stages of her life then come into the sport and you know done progressively more and more running as most people do start off you know with a small amount of running and then it then it builds over time and I guess where some of those general nutrition messages or guidelines start to maybe conflict or 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 run you into trouble in terms of those higher training volumes as you start to ramp things up so it was really nice to get her insights into that and and her thoughts and and how I guess in her running journey, she kind of made those discoveries that, oh, hang on a minute, maybe this, what I thought was kind of healthy eating and, and guidelines around nutrition is maybe not serving me well or, or as well as it could or it should. Awesome. Yeah, let's let's get stuck into it. Yep, let's do it. Elise Beacon, welcome to The Long Munch. 
Thanks, Steph. Thanks, Alan. It's great to be here. I'm a big fan of the podcast. So I must say I'm a bit of a, a, a lesser caliber guest to some of the others you've had on the podcast, but I do eat food. So I guess that makes me somewhat qualified. Makes you an expert. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I must admit, I, I kind of did a bit of stalking on LinkedIn, as I'm sure we all probably do. And I found out that you are a project management and communication specialist with experience in journalism, international development programs and fundraising. And then when I kept reading, it says that your career has taken you from Denmark to Afghanistan to so can you tell us a little bit about this and how you kind of ended up in these places yeah no worries so I started my career as a, a journalist and a professional writer and actually moved to to Copenhagen Denmark at about 23 for a few years I moved there originally for love that didn't work out but it (laughs) did um, spearhead my career in an interesting direction so it was definitely worthwhile so yeah I I got an internship as a writer with a UN agency in Copenhagen and I decided that I wanted to go a little bit deeper into doing the hands-on work on the ground And an opportunity came up to work on some projects with UNOPS in a few different places. So the first one came up in Sierra Leone, which was during the Ebola response. So Sierra Leone's in West Africa. And I jumped at the opportunity, but in hindsight, I was completely underprepared. Like I I literally moved there within a week of getting the job. And then I was Googling how not to catch Ebola at the airport. (laughs) en route out of the country so that was a great sign yeah and then after Sierra Leone I went back to Adelaide which is where I grew up for a a quick breather before getting a role in northern Afghanistan for the same organization and that project was building roads for remote communities to connect them to like healthcare centers and schools and and markets and things and because we got to work on the roads, I I did get to see quite a bit of the country, which was completely beautiful. The people were incredibly kind and hospitable. But yeah, there was quite an undercurrent of violence as well. So it was quite difficult to to work there too. Yeah, quite an intense experience. Yeah, wow. Been in some remarkable places and seen a lot of crazy things, I bet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There there are a few stories to be told, but maybe another time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I'm I'm fascinated to hear about this one. I saw on I moved on then from LinkedIn to Instagram and <laughs> saw that many years ago you not only ran but placed third in the non-pro category of the half marathon in North Korea. So first of all, how did you end up running a half marathon in North Korea? Yeah, so that was actually the result of a a Google job. I was just at home in Adelaide and was kind of planning my next marathon and and had a look at some, I like to travel for, for a race and was having a look online and Pyongyang came up and I thought, huh, how do you actually 
go to North Korea and it really piqued my interest. So I signed up, but I signed up for the full marathon distance. And because I was living in Afghanistan at the time when I had to train for it, it was really difficult to train because my only option was either running on a treadmill in the basement with no windows or running 170 metre loops of my garden, which, you know, (laughs) gets quite repetitive. So I decided to downgrade to the half marathon, which was a bit more sensible. Yeah, fair, fair. I think people during COVID were doing that, running 170 metres and and back. (laughs) This was like 2016, so I was ahead of my time. Yeah, you were ahead. (laughs) And so how was the experience running over there? Yeah, it was bizarre, as you could imagine, but it did look like a race as as we know it over in Australia. It was definitely much cleaner than any other race I've ever run in. And I honestly think that's because people were so scared to litter their gel packets everywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there were lots of people out there on the course kind of clapping along and seemingly celebrating but they didn't look that happy to be there and some people were yelling out yellow at me and I wasn't able to confirm whether that was because of my blonde hair or or what that was about but yeah (laughs) but the most interesting part of that experience was actually after finishing the race and being in this huge stadium called Mayday Stadium I got to watch the end of the the men's marathon and The finish was totally controversial. So there was this Ethiopian runner called Katima Bikili Nagasa, and he's like a 211 marathoner, so a very good runner. Mm -hmm. And he was in the lead and he was like 25 metres ahead of this other runner coming into the stadium. And he was following the timing car, which turned left into the stadium, but the finish line was on the right and there was a North Korean runner behind him. So this Ethiopian guy gets all confused. He has no idea where he's going. No one redirects him. In the meantime, the North Korean runner is able to get to the front and win the race, which looked like a bit of a stitch up to me. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you would be just a, a, little bit, uh, a little bit annoyed with that one but probably a bit scared to protest. Well, yeah, he was visibly upset. Like on standing on the podium, he had his head bowed and he wouldn't make eye contact with anyone giving him his silver medal. He was pretty upset. But, yeah, probably a bit too scared to protest very, you know, formally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, wow. And it looks like you got presented with a bronze medal there and in a stadium that had a bigger crowd than you probably get for track and field at most Olympics. Yeah, that was really wild and definitely up there with the most surreal experiences of my life. So, yeah, I got a medal. I got this big green vase. uh, I got a bunch of nylon flowers with glitter all over them and I had to stand on this podium and the the North Korean national anthem, or I think it was that, it was some sort of patriotic song kept playing on repeat and this stadium could seat 100,000 people. So it was like the size of the MCG, but it was probably 75% full. So, yeah, 
Hill. Like so many people in the stadium. And I, I looked out at the crowd and tried to look at all the haircuts and I could only see like three different variations. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And, yeah, Alan and I first e-met you when you were kind enough to invite us on for the Kudos podcast to talk about nutrition prep for the marathon leading into Gold Coast at the time. Can you tell us a little bit about the work you do with for the Kudos? Yeah, yeah, it was great to chat with you and Alan on for the Kudos or FTK for short. Basically, it's a, a running podcast. It was set up by Brett Robinson, who holds the Australian record in the marathon and half marathon, and elite runner Joel Tobin White, who he runs like a 62 minute half marathon as well. So Crazy. exceptional runners. And I host a series that's called the Q&A sessions. And they're basically interviews with experts in different areas like exercise physiology or sports psychology or nutrition and and we relate everything back to running so I just basically choose guests I'm interested in learning something from (laughs) and then hope that everyone else gets something from it too and it's it's been really fun I've learned so much from doing the interviews and yeah it's been it's been really fun to work with the guys on FTK. Mm. Yep yeah and has running always been a, a big part of, of your life? Running's actually, it's a more recent love, actually. It probably, I, I first started properly running in my early 20s. I loved sprinting as a kid and got roped into doing cross country, but absolutely hated it. But sport was has always been a, a big part of my life. But the running has been more recent. And since I found running, I've just like fallen head over heels for it and it's it's infiltrating my life in more ways than one now beautiful and i guess we'll find out how that's infiltrated on the nutrition side and i think <laughs> the fact that you've you know sort of come into it more recently is perfect for the the discussion that we're going to have today because the topic's really around i guess nutrition advice for the general population but in some cases, maybe not necessarily suitable to athletes of, of different levels, you know, when you start to do a, a lot of training. And I guess, you know, Steph and I talked about our experiences on this in the A episode, our last episode of the podcast, and we really want to follow this up with an athlete who has kind of been through that process themselves. And so obviously someone who's coming into running in adulthood is is perfect because you've sort of had all that sort of life experience and, and general I guess, education around healthy eating and nutrition and that sort of thing. And then, you know, had to potentially make some adjustments along the way as you've gotten more and more into running. And, you know, obviously, like most people, I'm assuming you started off with, you know, a little bit of running and then sort of the mileage and the the ambition has increased over time. And then obviously from a nutrition point of view, that has implications as well. So I guess, you know, if we start there and go back to when you first started running seriously, can you remember if there were particular ideas that you sort of, or preconceived ideas you had about nutrition that maybe came from sort of general advice about nutrition for the, for the general population or, or messages around that? And I guess things that you've since kind of understood are maybe potentially not helpful or possibly even counterproductive to, you know, when you start to do a lot more training? Yeah. So I remember when I first started running, I was thinking to myself, hmm, 
okay, I'm running a bit more now. I just want to like be healthy, maintain my weight and fuel my activity appropriately. Like how do I do that? But I was quite shocked in that it wasn't an easy question to answer. (laughs) I think a lot of the narrative around nutrition in our society is focused around weight loss and clean eating. And so I found that a little bit confusing. And of course, I understand why that's the case. Like it's something that a lot of people struggle with, you know, having a healthy diet and exercising can also prevent disease and illness. Like there's lots of good reasons for for doing that. But yeah, I didn't feel like that was the right approach for the increased level of activity that I was engaging in. So I found that quite tough. I found a few general reference points that were focused around like eating healthily and the food pyramid, which has the carbs at the base and then the fats and protein and the quote unquote sort of naughty foods at the top of the pyramid, which Mm. we're not meant to eat that much. And we'll probably go into this a bit more later, but I think categorizing foods in that way and the and giving that breakdown of what the general population should be eating doesn't necessarily apply for people who are running a lot and probably needing more carbohydrates, more protein, and also some of the like naughty foods at the top of the um, pyramid, because we need to basically be topping up our calories to get enough to be able to perform well in hard sessions or um, even to just sustain the increased level of activity compared to the general population. So yeah, I came to realize that I think pretty it probably happened over over time and I I guess the realization was that it's probably not appropriate for a runner to eat cleanly 100% of the time because doing so probably put you in a calorie deficit which might open the door to like low energy availability it might impact our training performance and also can uh, contribute to some pretty bad injuries as well and if there's anything that's the enemy of a runner it's getting injured or getting sick and I think nutrition plays a massive part in both of those things yeah yeah for sure that's kind of the the attitude that you see with a lot of people when they first get into running it's almost like part of this overall attempt to improve their health you know you start doing a lot more physical activity and you think well I've done that I should do the same from a nutrition perspective as well and you know sometimes that sort of can be a bit counterproductive particularly if you do both at once and and as you said put yourself into that kind of energy deficit sometimes without even realizing that that that's what you're doing until things start to go wrong later down the track. I feel like when I started running I was such a rookie like I ran my first marathon with a Casio stopwatch I just did not know really what I was doing um But certainly more recently, I've become really aware of it. And there's a lot more information out there on REDS. Even last week, I was chatting with an endocrinologist, Dr. Izzy Smith, and we were doing an interview for FTK. And and she was mentioning like the importance of nutrition, especially actually taking on carbohydrates in promoting good bone health and also kind of avoiding going into that dangerous like reds zone so yeah certainly I'm very aware of it now and I'm so scared of getting bone stress injuries that (laughs) it's very front of mind Mm -hmm. yep for sure 
Okay, well, let's have a look at a couple of the guidelines that, that Steph and I discussed on the podcast in the last episode. And the, the first one of those is probably a little bit related to this is kind of around that concept of that, you know, you should eat according to appetite, sort of eat intuitively or mindfully or something like that. And I think, you know, that's probably, you know, generally good advice for the general population. And as you said, the, the majority of the population are relatively sedentary and, and at you know, potential risk of diabetes, heart disease, that kind of thing. And so, as you said, the focus is more on preventing, you know, body fat gain. And and so these kind of messages sort of support that. Do you feel like for you that kind of sense of appetite and just eating according to hunger or sort of eating intuitively does work for you when you're training? Or do you find that you have to sort of make this conscious effort to go, oh, actually, I need to keep up the calorie intake because I'm actually struggling to keep up with my needs when I'm doing a lot of running? Yeah, I I do often use the, the fullness factor as an indicator that I've eaten enough. But I must say, I probably have a secret weapon in that my partner, Marty, he's like, more than a foot taller than me and often I'll look at our dinner portions and they look quite similar Mm -hmm. (laughs) so I'm probably just eating a little bit more anyway at meal times which is good I do tend to worry a little bit if I get hunger pangs or feel hungry through the day I kind of think that's not a great sign as as a runner so one of the things that I'll do to to manage that is just make sure I'm on top of having snacks through the day, even if I'm not super hungry, just topping up a little bit throughout the day to make sure that there's always some energy there. Yeah. Yeah. And and are you someone who, and I think this is quite different in, in different people that are involved in sort of endurance sport, but you are you someone who finds that your appetite does sort of scale up and down relatively well as your training goes up and down or you take a period where you're not running as much, you tend to get like full more easily or, or if you start doing a lot more training that your appetite sort of increases to kind of meet that demand or are you someone that kind of has to be a little bit more consciously aware when training changes in either direction? That's a really good question. I think I'm certainly very hungry or can eat a lot during peak marathon training because, mm. yeah, the, the training does get quite high. But that said, sometimes I still feel like quite hungry on, on rest days and things. And I, I see nutrition still as really important to aiding that recovery during the down periods. Yeah. So I try not to... I, I w- certainly wouldn't cut down my food too much during those times. It's more about being more conscious if I've got a hard session coming up or a long run that I'll have definitely more calories and more carbohydrates leading into those sessions than I would say for an easy 60-minute run that I have the following day. Mm, yeah. yeah, and I think we discussed this last week, Steph, uh, obviously, you know, the appetite response post-training can be very different from one person to the next or even different types of training, you know, swimming versus running, for example, you can often get a quite different response to that. But I think, you know, what you're saying here, Elise, is, you know, and we talk about this a lot on the podcast, is that kind of eating in anticipation of the event because you've got a fuel for the event. And maybe that's where potentially, depending on what you've done, you know, the day or two prior, the appetite may not be the perfect indication of how much fuel you need to put in because, you know, your gut doesn't know what's to come kind of thing in the 12 or 15 hours after that. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, I can I can think of a few different scenarios where appetite's not a good marker for me. Like pre-marathon, if I'm trying to carb load, like I'll aim for 500 plus grams of carbs per day in the two days prior and I might get to 4pm and be feeling so full but I still need to find ways to get more carbs in my stomach because I know it's going to benefit me in the race so you know I'll I'll look to those real bang for your buck carbs like those teeny tiny packets of sultanas or you know a can of coke or something so that's one situation and then pre pre pre-race in the morning like race morning you never feel hungry you might have woken up at 3 a.m you're not used to eating at that time but you still need to shove something in because you're you're probably going to race poorly if you don't so that's another time where it's like you can't rely on the appetite and then also like post long run too sometimes I feel hungry or like at 30k I'm fantasizing about a sandwich that I'm going to eat after the run or something like that but then other days you might not feel hungry after but I'll always bring an up and go with me in the car so I can at least drink that straight away and like start the recovery process and then have a proper meal when I get home yep yeah, no, that makes sense. And Steph, I know you were talking about this last week, but I think you felt times when you were doing a lot of running that appetite, you know, sometimes was helpful, but didn't always kind of get you to where you felt that you should have or needed to go. Mm, yeah. And I tend to find like if I, <clears throat> sometimes if you're not getting in enough during the session, your appetite could actually be worse after. Whereas if you are getting something in, during and, and constant you kind of it's it's helping stimulate it that and whether that's changing you know the hormones that are that are going on in your in your gut to help stimulate the appetite yeah that that could happen for me and then yeah just depending on the intensity of the session as as well would would change the appetite and I was like you Elise I mean I obviously had a bit of the more background with the sports nutrition side of things but always thinking about all oh, crap the next day I've got to back this up with a four or five hour you know run in in the trails so I you know really need to take advantage of this time to to help get me through the next session so I'm not not fading so much mm, yep awesome so I think you know as, as you've, you've both said there are times where you know training ramps up and the appetite comes along with that but it's not necessarily perfectly matched or perfectly in sync with the, the actual timing of when you need to put the fuel in relative to when you're actually going to burn it in training or a race yeah Yeah. cool all right one of the other things that we looked at in the last episode and i I see this quite a lot i think you do as well steph is i guess the the general message around sort of whole grain or whole meal versions of food so people eating you know brown rice and you know bread with a thousand different types of seeds in it and things like Mm -hmm. that and having all these really high fiber foods and again for the general population who are relatively sedentary, don't have very high energy needs, they need to get that fibre into a relatively small amount of food because they're not eating many slices of bread or massive bowls of pasta or rice or something, or at least they don't need to and probably shouldn't be. 
so to get that fiber in, you kind of need those whole grain versions. But is that something that you encountered sort of early on in, in your running journey, at least in terms of trying to eat those sort of whole grain things, thinking that's kind of the healthy thing that I should be doing, but then finding that it was actually a, then a struggle to get in enough food because it was, you know, the, the higher fiber versions of everything? Yeah, I definitely find that it's harder to get more food in. Like for me, you know, three pieces of white toast don't even touch the sides, but mm. it's probably, you can only probably eat one slice of the whole grain stuff. But it's it's a little bit tricky because I do, I love food and I really prefer the taste of wholemeal and whole grain bread and I love the nuttiness of brown rice. But I have to be a bit selective now when I do eat these things. Uh, I think, yeah, for the reason you mentioned about maybe getting full prematurely and that not being able to get in enough calories, I just have to be conscious of topping up with other things like lollies or other sort of low-fibre sweet <laughs> maybe options. And the other thing is I have noticed that the whole grains don't sit so well in the stomach before yep. a session can be a little bit dicey. Same with the long run too. So definitely opt for lower fiber white bread, like sourdough bread before those sessions. Yeah. Yeah. No, it makes perfect sense. And I think, you know, for those who sometimes concerned, oh, you know, I eat those foods because they're, you know, better for my cholesterol or, you know, better for my, my gut health and that sort of thing. I guess when we're, we're not saying, you know, have an extremely low fiber diet, but if you're eating, as you said, three slices of toast instead of one, if the bread has a third of the fiber content per slice of bread, but you're eating three of them, you actually end up getting the same fiber content anyway. It's just spread out across three slices of bread instead of one. So this is actually a strategy not to necessarily deliberately limit fiber, although in some cases, as you just said, you know, before a run or when you're carb loading or something, that might be a deliberate strategy temporarily. But I guess it's about trying to not have an excessive intake of fiber when you increase the amount of these foods that you're eating. Mm, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Uh, and just coming back, I, I just remembered there, you're talking about the carb loading and getting to four o'clock and realizing you've still got 200 grams to go and how is it <laughs> going to fit in? Go back and listen to episode 9B of the podcast because we had this exact discussion with Karen Hill, who's a mountain biker around this. And Karen and I worked on a, a plan for her. And it's the first time I've ever had someone complain that they were hungry while they did a carb load because oh, it was wow. so compact. <laughs> But it wasn't like lollies and jam and soft drinks and things like that because often that's just too sickly and sweet and things as well and that's not pleasant either. So, yeah, have a, have a listen to that one because we sort of run through what she did there and, and how it all kind of worked. Me too. All right. I guess one of the other things, and I know you've kind of touched on this already, so we probably don't need to spend too much more time on it, but that concept, again, as you said, with your know, dietary guidelines about avoiding the quote-unquote unhealthy or junk foods or you know the official term in, in Australia, at least, is discretionary foods. So these are kind of your processed packaged convenience foods, things that are low in fiber, maybe high in salt or sugar or fat or alcohol potentially. Obviously, alcohol is probably a, a little bit of a separate issue here. But again, you know, you know, minimizing the intake of those foods is clearly going to be a good idea for the general population where the tendency is to overconsume calories. But when we're in a situation with potentially low energy availability of not getting in enough calories, as you said before, you know, these start to become almost 
to some degree necessary unless you've got an enormous appetite and you can actually stomach the volume of food to include some of these in there to get up to the the number of calories you need to meet that energy availability is that something again that you kind of learnt along the way that you know you kind of had to at some stage include some of these foods in even though they're quote unquote the the unhealthy or bad foods to actually meet your needs and and how did that sort of realization come about yeah it definitely took some time because I think it is really drummed into us that we should avoid those kinds of foods like you know lollies or chips or ice cream you know they're labeled as treats or something to enjoy as a reward for exercising or there's the concept of cheat days and and that sort of thing so it was definitely a lot of like fighting against all of the opinions that have been thrown at highly processed foods and how we should feel about them I think I just I do generally try to eat healthily most of the time because I want the vitamins and nutrients but I have come to realize that the lollies and sports drinks or processed foods are a necessary part of the runner's diet at certain times like not necessarily every day but certainly those like pre-fueling moments for hard sessions for long runs also fueling during long runs and they're like as you said before Alan a really compact way to get a high amount of calories in because they're not too filling so yeah and I think over time I've just developed this general attitude that I think we shouldn't be too restrictive in our food choices in general because I think it can be a little bit detrimental to our health or or even mental health and quality of life being overly restrictive so I have a much more chill approach to food in general I eat like full fat everything I love butter I love olive oil I'm half Italian so that's life to me (laughs) and I've kind of stopped seeing foods as like good or bad and in such a black and white kind of term Mm. yeah definitely And, and we had this discussion you know before we we hit record as well and I think it's something that you know a lot of people kind of their their view around this kind of changes over time just with with age and and life experience we, we mentioned we were talking with Gemma Sampson I can't remember off the top of my head I'm guessing maybe episode 26 something around there she was talking about sort of DIY sports foods things that you can take as alternatives to bars and gels and things like that and we're just talking about the fact that, you know, when she started out a career, and I'm sure Steph and I were probably the same, was just so long ago we've probably forgotten, or we'd like to forget anyway, that, you know, you, you kind of are a bit more idealistic about, you know, what optimal nutrition kind of looks like or what we quote unquote should or shouldn't be doing. And then, you know, over time that that kind of value or stance kind of softens over time just with, with life experience and being a bit more pragmatic about the whole thing, I suppose. I was going to say, Al, you were very close to the episode number. Episode 27 was when we had Gemma on, and I only know that because I was able to do a quick Google. I was going to say also with this that obviously this can go kind of two ways as well. Yeah, I've I've definitely got athletes that I'm sure you've got, Al, that um, can then also think that because I'm running so much or I'm exercising so much that like 
it's all right, I can just keep living on these discretionary items. And and Mm. when they then find, oh, okay, like, yeah, maybe going a bit more towards some healthy food can help my training and my recovery and, you know, I've got longer lasting energy, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it is, it's all about that kind of of balance and and understanding fuel needs and, and where it's appropriate to to perhaps place some of those discretionary items when it's needed. Mm. And I think from what you were saying before, Elise, like, and I think this is exactly the right way to look at it, is that sort of concept of, okay, well, I've got my base nutrition, which is, you know, not those discretionary foods, it's kind of the core food groups. But then these foods are kind of almost supplemental to, to meet those extra calorie needs that are there because of my training rather than being a substitute for my day-to-day nutrition. Yeah. A hundred percent because I enjoy the real food much more, but I just know that sometimes I need the extra stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And and on that, what, what are sort of your your go-tos for yourself when you're running that your favorite things? Is it, do you go for gels or do you get fancy with pre-prepared foods and things like that? I definitely take gels on long runs, but then I was using like Morton 320 drink mix for marathon training this year. And that went really, really well. And you'll be proud of me because I really pushed the boundaries (laughs) on how many carbs I could get in. (laughs) Yeah. And then I always have the natural confectionery company, um, Lolly Snakes, like they're even in my glove box of my car. They're always there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, cool. And we'll come back and talk to you about the, the the getting the carbs in and the running a bit later on and, and how things went with, with Gold Coast because I know that was something that you focused on for, for that particular race, which was shortly after we spoke to you on the podcast, actually. One of the other recommendations that we discussed briefly in the last episode was around protein intake and the fact that you know recommendations for endurance athletes is a little bit higher than the general population and i guess this is one area where there's been a huge amount of focus in terms of marketing around increased protein needs whether that's kind of the protein powder and supplement industry but even like foods like you know high protein yogurts kind of dominate the the shelves in supermarkets now and everything's got added protein this and high protein that and i guess there's that from a marketing point of view there's kind of been that association built between these foods and kind of healthy active lifestyles and you know if you aspire to be you know live a healthy and active lifestyle you should be eating these kind of foods because that's part of what it's all about is kind of I guess, how the marketing's kind of been constructed around that. And then I guess there's, you know, popular diets that often have increased or suggested around increased protein intakes as well. But I'm I'm curious sort of when you started out running, how you kind of thought about protein. Did you think about protein as part of, you know, what nutrition was all about for running? And, And has your viewpoint on that kind of changed over time? Yeah, I don't think I thought about protein that much actually when I first started running, but there was certainly a lot of stuff on social media, people, you know, smashing their protein drinks and getting swole online. (laughs) But, (laughs) and there was, as you said about the the diet thing too, I do remember there was a period of time and this was kind of, I guess, in my teen years, early 20s, there was that big smear campaign on carbohydrates where lots of diets were swapping that out for like high protein sort of 
substitutes instead because they made you feel full and stopped you from overeating, I suppose. But yeah, my my view on protein has changed over time. I think, again, from reading things and, and chatting with people like yourselves, I now like to space out protein through the day. So I'll try and add a little bit to each meal as I go. So as an example, like in the morning, I might have oats with banana, but then I'll put like a dollop of full fat yogurt and a dollop of peanut butter on my oats and then at lunchtime I might add cheese or eggs or chicken or whatever to to a sandwich and then evenings are generally like a protein with some carbs as well so it kind of works out that they that I space out the protein throughout the day and then maybe I have been sucked in a little bit by the marketing because I do have a protein shake after going to the gym and because I'll do like a heavy weight session once or twice a week twice is always the goal usually once a week and then (laughs) and after long runs too I will have a recovery drink but it'll always be a combination of protein and carbs because I think you need the carbs as well as the protein yeah nice yep so general guidelines for the population in relation to macronutrients, so when we're saying macros, we're meaning carbs, protein and, and fat, they're typically provided as a percentage of energy from, from each nutrient. So, for example, you might hear the message that, you, you know, we should be getting 20% of our energy from protein, 30% from fat and so on. Is this something you had been aware of either before getting into the sport or or since? Yeah, I do remember kind of a visual representation of that idea. Like they'd have, I think this was back from school days, you know, they'd have a, a picture of a plate and kind of the percentage almost as a fraction of the a plate, what should be carbohydrates what should be protein what should be fats and I probably like vaguely prescribed to that idea or thinking but probably more because that was a a practical way to to eat a meal more so than thinking it was the correct way to do things but I do think the messaging has changed a lot and keeps changing and that can be a bit confusing as well so there was that time where like fat became the villain and maybe that segment of the pie got smaller and everything was low fat or light. And then there was like the, you know, Diet Coke golden era where there was the carbs were the enemy and then people were on the Atkins diet and all of these things. And and now there's a lot of talk about ketogenic diets or like low carb, high fat, which changes the percentages again. Yeah, so I'm trying to block all of that out and just make carbs my best friend. And there are some days where, like prior to a race, for example, my plate will be so many more carbs than anything else. Like I might have a little bit of chicken in my pasta or something, but I know that carbs is going to be the easiest thing for my body to break down and use as energy when I'm pushing myself the the next day. So I'll prioritize it 
based on the needs that I have coming up, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess, you know, like with Al and I, when we were chatting about this, you and you may be aware of it or have seen it, that in sports nutrition, we tend to like to kind of give or prescribe more in terms of relative to body mass. So when we're talking about, you know, goals for carbohydrate, protein and fat, will tend to be, okay, well, depending on your training day, it's potentially more around this kind of goal. So, you know, it might be if we're not training as much, you know, three or four grams per kilo of body mass and then when our training increases. And so we tend to talk a bit more about that with with sports nutrition because obviously it's more related to our fuel needs and how much the muscle is is utilising. But I guess that is a very tricky message for the for the athletes to kind of try and absorb. So that's where, yeah, you, you might tend to see sometimes more of a description with plate messages. So I think, Al, it's the, is it US, the US dietitians that? Oh, yeah, the athlete's plate. Yeah, the athlete's plate. Mm. They, they have some good pictorial, yeah, diagrams, I guess, when, you know, you've got a lower training and, you know, a, a more moderate training and a higher training day. But, yeah, so, yeah, it becomes a bit of a tricky message, I guess, doesn't it, Al? Like if you're not seeing a, a sports dietitian to kind of try and translate that in, in food terms. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we've talked about this on, on numerous podcasts, I guess, in terms of the fact that, you know, particularly your carbohydrate needs are going to scale based on your training volume and and that's going to change not only week to week as your training changes throughout the year but it's it's changing you know day to day you know you might do one day where you've got a three or four hour run and then another day where you've got no exercise at all and so you know sticking to this rigid you know the plate should look like this or a certain percentage of calories from that is clearly not going to serve you well because Either then you're eating some monstrous amount of protein to keep those ratios the same and you just can't eat it as as you were describing before, at least, you know, you, you deliberately downsize that part of the meal when you do have to eat a lot of carbs, you know, carb loading being the most extreme day of the year kind of for that. And so clearly that that proportion's not going to work. And I did I did sort of chuckle to myself before when you're talking about, you know, the trends that have sort of changed over time and when you're as old as Steph and I, you see those trends come back around again and, and repeat themselves. And, you know, there's nothing new about them. It just comes back in a slightly different with a slightly different name and slightly different marketing, but it's pretty much the same thing that was maybe fifteen or twenty years ago has recycled itself. Yeah, and I should say just for our listeners Alan and I are not that old. We we don't have walking sticks, so he keeps referring to how old we are. Bloody hell, Al. Well, you're the one who was classifying yourself as a master's athlete. Yeah, that's athlete, true, Steph. that's true. I'm still absorbing that. And then yeah, the, the other bit, you know, where this message doesn't work so great is obviously, you know, if their energy intake isn't sufficient enough and then, the you know, athletes are then working off 50% of energy from carbohydrate but they're actually not consuming sufficient energy they're not then meeting their goals as well so that's why we try and relate it more to to relative to to body mass and so I guess another key message that's often encouraged for the general pop is to reduce or minimize their their salt or, or sodium intake but as a runner what's your perception been around this messaging for, for salt yeah, I 
honestly don't think too much about salt or sodium in general. I think that's because I don't have like any underlying health reasons to to do that and there has been a lot of chatter but I'm sure I don't think any of this is actually based on evidence but people always talk about salt and cramping and I know you're the salt guy Alan so I'm sure there's an episode related to that too. <laughs> 45 I'm guessing 45a. Oh wow. Yeah. Awesome yeah so I, I guess I'm conscious about uh taking electrolytes especially during summer or if I'm like needing to stay hydrated before a race or before hard sessions I also have this really silly superstition and I'd be keen to hear your thoughts on this one because I'm almost 100% sure it's not backed by science, but I often have like a shot of pickle juice the night before a race and I think there's plenty of salt in that pickle brine, so maybe I'm keeping my levels topped up just with that. Yeah, yeah, we, we actually haven't done an episode on pickle juice. We we might have to do that at some stage. Actually, the, the guest that episode I was talking about before, 45, around cramping was Professor Kevin Miller, who did a lot of that pickle juice research back in the early 2010s. So maybe we should get him back, Steph, to, to have a chat about that. But yeah, it's an interesting one. That, that research kind of looked promising at the start, but it hasn't really kind of kicked on since then. And, you know, there was always the questions, well, what is it about pickle juice? Is it the, the acidity? Is it the saltiness? Is it something else? The fact that, you know, commercial pickle juice that you buy has never touched a pickle. It's just called that. Yeah, it, it's an interesting one. So, yeah, I, I think the the jury's still out to some degree. Some people swear by it. Other people say it's useless. But I think if you, you know, when we go back to that episode 45 around cramping and, and Kevin's description, you know, cramping is very similar to gut issues. There's a lots of potential different causes. They're kind of additive. So you can have multiple factors coming. And once enough of those kind of add up on top of each other, then you get to the point of cramping. So it's not surprising that, that a single strategy is going to work for everyone or even work at all in, in most people. You kind of have to look quite broadly at, at what's going on. But yeah, maybe we will have a, a chat to Kevin. That's a good idea, actually, Steph, around pickle juice. Yeah, I think we touched on it, but we probably didn't go into into depth. And, you know, from my understanding, it, it you know, the research was that it potentially could reduce the length of the, of the cramp, but it, you know, doesn't prevent it from occurring as, as such. But yeah, going into it in much more detail is nice. But if anything, pickle juice is fantastic as a nice reset for the for the taste buds. So I used to use it, you know, in my ultras just to kind of wake wake me up, get rid of all the sweet stuff. And 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 yeah, so but yeah, let's let's see if we can get Kevin on for for another episode. That'd be great. <laughs> I actually I nearly got derailed by my superstition recently because it was just before a race. I was staying at my brother's place uh, in Melbourne, and I was like, oh, I haven't had my pickle juice, and I don't have any. Like it was 10 p.m. or something, so I just had a forage in the fridge and found this jar pickle jar that was like right at the back and I was like I have no idea how long this has been open and it was one of those like should I do it shouldn't I do it and I did it and then I was lying in bed and I was like 
oh my God, maybe it was a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. That kind of relates to a little bit of my next question in terms of supplements and perhaps athletes thinking too much into supplements at times and when they don't have have them going to these extreme measures like that one there. So you, you often hear the message that, you know, dietary supplements are considered unnecessary and or, you know, a waste of money for the general population unless, you know, there's an underlying medical concern or, or a deficiency. So did you have a particular viewpoint on this prior to, to running and has that kind of view changed since you've, you've been running more? Yeah, it's definitely changed over time. I don't think I used any supplements or saw much need for them before I started running, but now there are a couple of things I take and the big one for me is iron. So I find it hard to absorb iron even though I eat meat and I do all the right things, I think. Like I try and have citrus with iron and I space out drinking coffee because I know caffeine can be an inhibitor of absorption. So I do take supplements or I have an iron infusion So earlier in the year, I went to Iten in Kenya and trained at altitude for a bit. And so I was taking iron supplements up there because I think you basically need your iron to be at a decent level for you to get the benefit from the altitude training. And also your body's just doing so much behind the scenes, just living at altitude. So that was, that was something I took. And the other two, vitamin D. So when I was living in Denmark during winter, <laughs> that was an absolute killer for me because I'd cycle to work in the dark. I'd get home in the dark. It was grey all the time. I remember this one day at work where this like little ray of sunshine popped through the window and I pressed my cheek against the glass to, you know, feel it on my body. (laughs) There was just like no sunshine. And so my vitamin D was at a really, really low level. It was like single digits. So I needed some pretty potent vitamin D to get back up to normal levels. And I didn't know why it was important then, but I'm now aware that it's good for immunity. It's important for bone health. So now when I get my bloods done to check where my iron's at, I always ask my doctor to just do a quick vitamin D test as well, because during summer, I'm usually fine because I'm in shorts all the time. But um, winter is probably the, the problem part of the year for me. And then the third thing is caffeine. So absolute coffee fiend, but I also like popping a like a no dose an hour before a race. And I've experimented with taking ca- caffeine during races as well. And I find that gives me a little bit more pep in my step. <laughs> and yeah, so they're probably the three. Yep. Mm, yep. And it sounds like some of that is kind of like what we we're talking about before with the discretionary foods and things is kind of you know, some of that is being involved in sport and realizing that these things are helpful, but things like the vitamin D, a lot of that is just sort of, to some extent, almost letting go of those beliefs that, you know, oh, my diet will give me everything, supplements are a waste of time. And like, that's just sort of wisdom and life experience, I think, and, you know, experiencing 
vitamin D in single digits and that kind of thing to to go, oh, hang on, actually, maybe this is actually useful and there is a place for supplements, at least for, for you in that scenario. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. And you awesome. can tune into episode 63 for that one when we spoke to Dan Owen about vitamin D supplementation. So it's it's good. Like for it's every good. episode. Yeah, you you're doing so so well. Thanks for that, Elise. <laughs> Do you remember these episode numbers off the top of your head? Well, you know, how are you some doing of them? This? I, I wish I could say that I could, but Alan, bloody hell, he can. He has a wonderful memory. But no, I do this quick, quick search into Google and it pops up for me. <laughs> So, yeah, thank you so much for, for yeah, you, you know, your experience and, and perspective in, te- in terms of how you, you know, interpret the, the messages that you've been given for the general pop and translate that into what you need for, as an athlete. I'm going to hand it over to Al now to, yeah, just find out a few fun facts about you and, and how your experience was in the Gold Coast Marathon as well. Mm. Yeah. So you mentioned a bit earlier that sort of focus on getting more carbs in prior to Gold Coast Marathon. I know we were on, you know, for the kudos, I think it was only two or three, or maybe it was recorded maybe a month before the marathon or something. So mm-hmm. you had a month of that information. Everyone else had a couple of weeks. How, how did that all go? How did that sort of come about and how did it all come together on the day on the Gold Coast? Yeah, that timing of the release of that podcast was pretty good it was just to give myself an unfair advantage over everyone else (laughs) (laughs) yeah that was an incredibly useful conversation and there's lots of people have uh, listened to that episode and and since given that feedback as well because it was so practical um yeah for me I just I knew that I was going to be able to have bottles on the course so I decided I wanted to practice with the Morton 320 drink mix and also knowing that the Gold Coast, even though it's winter, still a bit more humid, I would be needing to get in some fluids during the race. So I thought "Mm, it's a bit easier to do it all in one, get the carbs and the fluids in together. So I'd never practiced with that before, but I really made it my mission to, I probably like, for the whole month before and I mean no it would have been like the month before my taper I was just really hitting the nutrition hard and I would make bottles and I would put them on top of my car bonnet and I'd make sure I'd be running loops where I could like pick up a bottle every 5k's or or whatever and I just kept trying to push up the carbohydrates a little bit more a little bit more each time and there were times where I felt like, uh-oh, maybe I've gone a bit hard. Or, and I remember Steph saying you might have to dial back the intensity, like just run a little bit slower for a bit to let your stomach settle. And that really worked for me. And I'd also recalled times where I had had a bit of GI distress after taking in gels but not really realising I had to maybe chase them with a little bit of water and so that was a really useful piece of advice for me too so I started taking in the gel and then almost swilling a little bit of water in my mouth while I was swallowing the gel and then 
it didn't seem to impact my stomach when I did that. Mm. So, yeah, so I, the on the day of the marathon, I managed to get in 200 grams of carbohydrate, which I thought was big achievement mm. in like just under three hours. And I got all of my bottles down and I also decorated them. So they looked fabulous. They had like sparkles all over them, <laughs> which made them even more palatable on the day. Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. All right. Now, a couple of other questions that are kind of related to, well, some are related to running, some maybe not so much. I guess the first one, is there something on your running bucket list? Yeah, I would love to run the Copenhagen Marathon. And I think that's because it would be an ode to the place where I first started doing most of my running. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, cool. And is that looking like it's on the horizon? Maybe. I think I am going to try and do a, a, a marathon in Japan in late February, March as well. I've got so many on my bucket list. Yeah, fair enough. All right. And your favorite post-run snack or drink? Yeah, so there's a cafe near us called Kuya and they have this amazing smoothie that's like almond milk, peanut butter, cocoa, and then banana. And I get them to put some protein powder in it as well. And it's they mix it with ice, so it's like icy cold too. Mm. And I absolutely love that on a after a long run. Yep. Excellent. All right. Not quite related to running, but is there a different sport that you've always wanted to try but never had the chance? I think kite surfing, but I'm really terrified of getting the wind direction wrong and being catapulted into space. <laughs> so I haven't I haven't given that one a go yet, but it does look very fun. Mm. Yes, and that does happen occasionally too. You see people it does. here in Melbourne end up on the other side of Beach Road or something. <laughs> that would <Yeah>. be me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a quick one I've just added in here. Obviously, you know, just on the weekend gone, we had the, the Berlin Marathon and we had the women's world record go by over two minutes in the, the so-called disposable shoes, super shoes, to 11.53. What was your kind of reaction to that and your take on the whole thing? Oh, I, yeah, I watched it and it was absolutely unreal. And she was flying coming into the finishing shoot. She just looked so good. And I have seen that there's been a lot of photographs since of her sort of holding the shoe up and Mm. kissing the shoe. And I think that's probably Adidas's dream from a marketing perspective. I know there were a few comments in some chat groups that I'm in that were like, where can we get these shoes? And, you know, is $700 worth it sort of thing. So, yeah, but unreal to see just Tijist Asefa like running that fast and going sub 212 was just something of our wildest imagination, I think. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure something that'll be a big discussion point for months to come on all the various running-related podcasts, including the one that you're involved with, yeah. All right, so final question to finish up with. Do you live by any particular advice or motto? Yeah, I do have one little quote that I often will scroll in the front of 
every journal I've written on since probably high school, I think. And it's everything you can imagine is real. It's a Pablo Picasso quote. And I think I just like the sense of wonder and curiosity that that statement brings and something that I like to, I guess, bring into my life a little bit too. Sounds cheesy, but yeah. Yeah, no, fair enough. Fair enough. Awesome. Thank you so much, Elise. Yeah, I think this has been a really nice one, nice and practical, and I'm sure that our listeners are going to be, you know, there's going to be bits of advice there that have been like, oh, yeah, that's how I kind of thought about it and, and potentially thinking, oh, this maybe is how I perhaps should start to think about it if they are still in that kind of, you know, general pop message when they should be thinking more about you know them as a as an athlete in certain scenarios and yeah good good luck with your your training and your nutrition hopefully you continue to to keep training the gut we'll get back to you on whether you should be reaching for that jar in the back of the the (laughs) fridge for the pickle juice there might be some better strategies but yeah (laughs) thank you very much thanks so much for having me it's been fun Thank you so much, Elise, for sharing your your experience with nutrition for your running. And yeah, now I'll just hand it over to our to, to do a brief summary. Yeah, I'm going to be super brief today because I think it's it's pretty well outlined in both episodes. I guess the fact that there are particular guidelines or advice that you might hear online around nutrition for the general population that just doesn't necessarily translate across to athletes. And and probably as we've said repeatedly in both podcasts, the more training you do, the more that's potentially the case where, you know, often general guidelines around nutrition are suited for the general population where we, we're talking about issues of overweight and obesity or issues of overnutrition your heart disease and diabetes and all these sorts of things and where basically consuming too many calories or, or particular nutrients uh, can be a particular issue, whereas contrast that with running, cycling and triathlon and, and regular listeners to the podcast will know a lot of the issues that we face in these sports is actually issues of undernutrition. It's not eating enough to meet your needs and that's where a lot of these particular guidelines or messages can can certainly go wrong in some cases. So we talked about obviously appetite and that's one where, yes, appetite will generally increase the more training you do and reduce when you you do less training, but maybe the appetite doesn't match exactly what your nutrition needs are and certainly not match the, the, the ideal timing of when to get that nutrition in in terms of timing around exercise and things like that. So that can be a challenge sometimes and sometimes it does need to be a bit of your understanding what what fueling is from a theoretical point of view rather than just listening to your body. I mean, that will be okay in some scenarios, but it may run you into trouble potentially in others as well. We talked about, I guess, particularly fiber, and I know we've spoken about this on a, on a previous podcast episode, but the fact that if you if your idea of you know, ideal nutrition is, you know, whole grain this and multi-grain that and, you know, lots of seeds and those sorts of things in your bread and your your cereal grains and that sort of thing, then you may run into trouble in terms of inadvertently having too much fiber in your diet because by the time you start to eat enough of those foods to meet your overall calorie and carbohydrate needs, if you're consuming the highest fiber versions of those foods, your fiber intake can start to add up to to being quite high and potentially getting to the point where it's actually stopping you eating enough 
to be able to meet your nutritional needs. So particularly around those certain times where you do need to fuel a little bit more aggressively, things like carbohydrate loading before race, um, obviously gut issues is another one we've spoken about. That's where you do have to think twice about that. And sometimes going for those more refined or lower fiber versions of foods is okay. Um, and it's not going to be a problem. And in fact, it's going to be helpful for these scenarios. We've talked about a bunch of other ones. I won't go into them in detail, but I think the, the key message here is that there are certain times where, you know, some of those general nutrition messages aren't necessarily going to be that great for people doing a lot of training. And so you really need to think twice about that and think about how that applies to you and your particular situation. If you're not 100% sure, reach out for professional help. Sports dietitians are, are there for that reason to, to help people navigate this kind of stuff and, and put together something that's specific to your particular situation. And that can certainly be helpful as well. But I think one of the things that really came out with that discussion with Elise is also just the fact that some of it is is learnt through experience and some of it is just, I guess, letting go of those kind of ideals or perfectionism a little bit around nutrition as we get a bit older and a bit wiser and have a bit more life experience that that kind of comes a bit naturally I think to, to a large extent as well and and that often serves you in in good stead so maybe some of the, the younger listeners may find this is more of a struggle or at least people earlier in their journey in running cycling or triathlon but the ones who've been around for a bit longer I think for the most part not always but for the most part of I probably figured this stuff out to a large degree but if this podcast I guess helps fast track that for people and and shortcut to you know improving your fueling then obviously that's going to be a better thing for both performance but you know potentially physical and and as Elise said even mental health at times as well so hopefully that has been useful for people to um, try and sort out I guess that the myths and misconceptions there or, or just those conflicts of perceived guidelines or, or what's ideal from a nutrition perspective. Awesome. That was great. Thanks, Al. And what are we going to be talking about in a couple of weeks' time in episode 65? Yeah, I'm really excited about this one. This is one we've sort of had in the pipeline for a little while now, but our guest has been away on holidays. It's been summer over in the Northern Hemisphere, which is probably the reason why. But our question is, what is metabolic adaptation and what's the relevance to me? So we've had an episode in the past about metabolic flexibility with Jeff Rothschild, but metabolic adaptation is another term as well that some people might be familiar with. And this is that concept of, you know, the amount of calories your body burns actually adjust to the amount of calories you eat and depends on training load and things like that as well. And that has relevance both at the high end and the low end for different reasons. But I think there's a lot of myths and misconceptions about this. There's all sorts of names given to this. You know, you hear everything from metabolic damage, which is a term that's used probably more so in the gym and bodybuilding industry, but you, you do hear it around from time to time. Adaptive thermogenesis. There's a whole bunch of different terms that kind of mean the same thing or, or are meant to mean the same thing. But I think there's also... Uh, a lot of assumptions that are made in this field and some leaps of faith in terms of the scientific rationales and, and theories in it as well. So Jose, we had him on the podcast before in episode 9A talking about carbohydrate loading because he's done some work on sort of carbohydrate needs of different athletes as well. But uh, more recently, his interest has been around, I guess, energy metabolism in endurance athletes. And so uh, he actually came to, to my consciousness around this because there was a, a big meeting of the Royal Society in London 
a few months ago, which was was live streamed, and it was actually around overweight and obesity. But they were talking about this concept of metabolic adaptation and its relevance, obviously, for that. But there's also an implied relevance to athletes. And I was actually watching the live stream, and then saw Jose pop up on the live stream asking a question of, of one of the panelists. And I know he's then gone on to be involved in writing a paper for the Royal Society on this topic. So I thought it'd be great to get him on and, and chat about this and chat about, I guess. Yeah, what is the relevance for runners, cyclists and triathletes? Is it something that we need to be concerned about? And how do we use that maybe to our advantage and not disadvantage if it is actually a thing? Cool. And so just wrapping up, a, a reminder that if you do have a question that you would like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at The Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Thank you to those people who have left ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We we really appreciate it. And if you do listen on one of these platforms and have a quick 30 seconds or so to spare, we'd love it if you could leave a quick rating or review. And those that leave a review on Apple Podcasts will go into a draw to win a copy of our ebook when it's published. We're getting there. And remember also that there's now 64 previous questions that we've already answered. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome. You might like to check out the back catalogue to see if there's something there that will be helpful to you. Most podcast apps only show you the last few episodes, but if you click back, you'll find the rest of them there going back to November 2020. And if you would like to be notified every time that a new episode is available, you can hit subscribe on the podcast app that you're listening to this on. And if your friends are asking about a particular nutrition issue for their training or racing and you've heard it on the podcast, you might like to let them know. Otherwise, if you haven't heard it on the podcast, you might like to let us know and we'll try and add it in for you. But otherwise, as always, we will love and leave you and and see you in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah, we'll do. See you then.